0: Chad and worship team, welcome to worship in the rhythm of the life of worship of our congregation in the midst of a week. I'm glad you're here. If you're a visitor with us, we welcome you today. Some uh, some months ago, actually it was actually about a year ago, I was at a conference and uh, I was with my colleagues. Many of you know I'm a campus pastor. I work within a varsity Christian fellowship. Uh, I work as a regional director working with our uh, campus ministry in Southern California. And I was at a conference with some of my colleagues, and one of my colleagues happened to be, she's married to a professor at Azusa Pacific College. And her husband uh, is an artist, and he's an art professor at Azusa Pacific. He's kind of a wild guy with a big beard and ponytail, and he kind of looks, I don't know, looks like an artist. So, you know, and uh, so they came to a conference, and we thought, how could we involve them, involve uh, worship with art um, more integrated into what we're doing. The ministry I work with, were just words, all words, very word-oriented. And uh, uh, so, how can we do this with art? So, they took the theme of our conference, and they brought that with them, and they brought some, um, I don't know, what do you paint on? These canvas, right, these big canvases, and they set up in a room at the first night, they basically pulled almost an all-nighter painting what the theme of our conference was. And, uh, and so in the morning, these things were up around the room. Now, I, let's see, Judy, do we have one of them on the screen? We do. Okay. So here's one of their paintings that they did. So tell me, when you look at this painting, just kind of what are some of the words that come to your mind in terms of what you're seeing? Just shout them out. Prayer, a little bit louder. What? I can't can't hear you guys. Okay, meditation, what else? What'd you say? Internalizing, okay? All right, what else? Food? What? Intestines? Okay, all right, so we all sort of look at things from our own filters. So, okay, so. Okay, okay, Beth hasn't had breakfast either, so anyway, so, all right, all right, okay, so this was one of the pictures that they put up, and it was actually, uh, uh, the kinds of things you're talking about were exactly the kinds of things that we were talking about. We were, part of our conference, we were discussing uh, the inner life, uh, life with God, um, contemplation, um, what's the role of, 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 Quiet or solitude or silence or reflection in one's life and experience with God. And so I thought, when I saw that, that given the theme, they captured a lot of uh, what we were talking about in this image. And this was their, uh, kind of their, their picture of it with the person sitting quietly and then this thing from the outside that was coming down and influencing. So they also drew another picture So, Judy, do you have that one? Okay, here's another picture. Um, Tell me some of the emotion or uh, feeling or ideas that come to your mind when you look at this picture. Spiritual attack, what else? Conflict. Struggle. Anguish. Struggling with sin, maybe? Okay, what else? Temptation. Tension. Turmoil. Turmoil. Okay, so uh, some of those things apply to what we were talking about. Let me tell you what it captured. What this picture was seeking to capture was some of turmoil, tension, conflict that comes with activity, with flurry, with uh, motion, with movement. And so here's a picture of a person... And around them is this activity and this thing from outside that's stirring and they're holding it and they're moving. And it's very, very much in contrast to the other picture, which was passive. This picture is about something that's very active. What we're trying to capture in this conference and what I wanted to talk about today is this tension that exists in the Christian life between contemplation and activity between sitting and serving, between going and doing, and being still and being before the Lord. And to help us look at this tension that's part of the Christian life and what the Scripture says about it and what it says about how this tension is to be lived out, we're going to look at two familiar passages that juxtaposed next to each other capture this tension. Much as these pictures are attempting to capture this tension, These stories in the scripture and our gospel writer Luke's decision to place them in his editing of the gospel right next to each other creates attention as well for us. So Liam, in your final performance. uh, So I've asked Liam to read the scripture uh, from the gospel of Luke chapter 10.
1: And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, With all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him, and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, The one who showed mercy toward him? Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In, a, in,
0: the, uh, in the life and the ministry of a man named Ignatius Loyola, Ignatius Loyola, he was a 16th century founder of what became the Society of Jesus, or what many of us know as the Jesuits. Um, many of us know uh, the Jesuits pretty much just through the Georgetown Hoyas basketball team. <laughs> so that's kind of our connection to the Jesuits. a sports at Georgetown or Marquette. Um, but Ignatius of Loyola, he founded the Society of Jesus with a vision and a mission to help souls. Now, what's unique about the Society of Jesus in the 16th century is that most orders in the church at that time, there were orders that, where the members took vows of stability, also chastity and poverty, but vows of stability, so the, the Benedictines, for instance. And a vow of stability, which Benedictines take today, means that you stay in one place. And the reason they took that vow of stability is because that allowed them to focus on prayer and devotion to God, but within the cloistered walls of an abbey or a monastery. So today, you can go up to the high desert in Vallermo or down south to San Diego and go to the The Prince of Peace Abbey or St. Andrew's Abbey. And there you'll see uh, monks, brothers that are there and they have lived there since the time that they took their vows. 10, 20, 30 years. They've lived in one place and that's where they do their work before the Lord. So what was unique about Ignatius Loyola is he said, our commission and the vow we will take is to help souls and we'll take a vow that we'll be ready to go at a moment's notice and deploy where we're requested to go. To be equipped to help souls in far-flung places, often cut off from communication with other Christians, Ignatius and his brothers developed some practices of devotion that included prayer and self-reflection and solitude and meditation. Ignatius said that the ideal uh, uh, Jesuit was someone who who, uh, lived with one foot raised, ready to go. But he also knew that, with, within a, in a, in a time that you know they didn't have cell phones, they couldn't you know couldn't get any lifelines really you know other through a, a letter process that took months, that they would be left on their own to make decisions and choices and to know how to live uh, without access uh, to other brothers and sisters, and so they needed to also cultivate along with this this um, this vow of of movement and activity. ...practices and habits that would allow them to be deep with God... ...and to hear from God... ...and to have a life characterized by walking in step with the Spirit... ...and in step with God. So today I want us to peer just a little bit into uh, the Scripture... ...invite Luke through the text to show us a way forward... ...for living this life that's captured in the pictures... ...in the stories, in Ignatius's uh, Society of Jesus... ...of being contemplatives. In action, why it's critical for us as a body is that uniquely our our mission statement in the in our church is about being a, equipping world changers. That would be uh, about activity and motion and movement. And yet, at the same time, our values in our church emphasize prayer and reflection and scripture. Um, so, even in the way that we have structured our mission as a church, this tension exists. Well, let's compare and contrast a little bit the two stories. The Good Samaritan, Mary and Martha. So if you have, I think the chart's up there. So here's, here's just some, we're going to just go kind of quickly today. We're not diving in totally deep on both these passages because I want to get to the other side where we talk about how is this tension really managed. But let's just make some observations together. So there's characters in both of the stories as Luke puts this together. The first, there's a lawyer. He's testing Jesus. In the second, there's a woman. She's welcoming Jesus. So there's both engaging and taking initiative with Jesus. In response to their initiative, in the first story, Jesus challenges. He challenges the lawyer. He asks him, not, he doesn't give him an answer to his question, he asks him a question back. In the second story, in response to Mary and Martha inviting Jesus into the home, we see Jesus teaching. And that's the posture that Jesus te- takes. How do the characters respond to what Jesus offers to them? Well, in the first story, the lawyer is self-justifying. In the second story, Martha, the main character, with Mary quietly sitting off to the side in the background, she's distracted and basically resentful. How does the lawyer respond when Jesus speaks again to him in the light of his self-justifying question? He seeks to save face. Martha, she blows up. She barks an order at Jesus. The lawyer says, well, I'm going to say face. Uh, well, I know the answer, but well, will you tell me? Who's my neighbor? Martha asks, Jesus, don't you care? In response, Jesus tells a story to the lawyer to help him see. And to Mary and Martha, Jesus, the Mar- to Martha, speaks some truth. And at the end, we see the Samaritan held up in the story that Jesus tells as a model neighbor, and we see in the second story, Mary held up off to the side, sitting at the feet of Jesus as a model of devotion. We see these two stories, we see some contrasts and comparisons, let's dive in a little bit on the first story, and I'm going to lean a little bit heavier on this story today as we... Even just in the backdrop is our own vision for being men and women in our church that are equipping men and women to change the world, to bring about uh, transformation through our lives. So I'm going to lean a little bit heavier into this side of the story. The lawyer's testing Jesus with the big question of the day. This was a question that would often be asked about eternal life. He's attempting to sniff out, in a sense, Jesus' orthodoxy. You know, is Jesus legit? Is he speaking... The right, the right words, religiously. Well, Jesus pushes him back. He doesn't give him an answer. Jesus often does this. He answers with a question. and So he pushes him back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. He's a lawyer. He should know the answer. So, he says, he recites what those words are. And Jesus tells him, indeed, you have the right answer. You need to actually act on it. Hmm... Things are getting a little bit more personal. Jesus is exposing for him maybe an area of limitation or an area uh, that the man did not want to be exposed. He knew the right answer intellectually, but now Jesus is pressing. You hear the word and know the word. Do you do this word? The lawyer responds with a self-justifying question to cover his inaction, his concerns with his own position and reputation. So he, tells, he responds by saying, well, who is my neighbor? As if to say, you know, if it's everyone in need, then everyone's my neighbor. It's a ludicrous answer. Or as if to say, well, you tell me who is my neighbor so that then I can know who needs to be served. And the, the non-neighbors, I can, I can set them aside and not be held responsible for them. In any event, we understand from the text, at least the way the story's told, is that he was exposed and he tried to justify himself. Well, the famous story that Jesus tells here, it includes this Samaritan. And the Jews, of course, they hated these Samaritans. 500 years earlier, when Assyria had come and taken over uh, uh, Palestine, taken over Israel, they had booted out about 20,000 of the Jews and sent them into exile. But they had brought in a whole bunch of people from other countries, from Syria and Babylon. And so in the midst of the centuries that took place after that, there was intermarriage. And what happened is essentially the the, the Jews that were there intermarried with these other folks, and they became half-breeds. Eventually, when, uh, uh, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, the Jews that came and had been in exile, they looked down on the Jews that had remained and had intermarried, and they considered them a second-class folks, and there was an enmity that had grown over years and years and generations and generations. So that's when Jesus pulls out in the story the, the idea of a Samaritan. It, it, created a visceral reaction in the midst of the Jews that would have heard this story, and for the lawyer that heard the story. But Jesus uses the Samaritan to illustrate in the story the centrality of what? Of showing mercy. Of showing mercy for inheriting eternal life. Now, we don't want to go and build a theology of salvation from any one passage, uh, and we don't want to do that from this passage alone, but we wouldn't want to build a theology of salvation without this passage either. In this story, the religious leaders failed to show mercy, but the Samaritan man did. Showing mercy is so central to gaining eternal life that it overcomes and tears down ethnic prejudice in order to act. It crosses over dividing lines of religion, of status, of economics. The Samaritan didn't know anything about the man except his need. He crossed over all kinds of lines of distinction that he that he had no idea existed for one reason, because his reference point for showing mercy was the man's need. Jesus is telling this story. We don't want to lose this in the backdrop because this is, has a lot to do with how one gains eternal life. The Samaritan had compassion. He had courage. He interrupted his journey. He got his hands dirty in the medical treatment for this guy, paid for his lodging, and then when he left, he paid even more the man's lodging. In the end, Jesus says to, the, to the, the lawyer, you're asking the wrong question. I don't know if you've seen this in the story before. The man asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? But in the end, Jesus asks a different question. He asks the lawyer, who was a neighbor to this man? Not who is who was my neighbor, but who was acting like a neighbor The issue is not who's my neighbor so you can know who you should serve, where you can draw the line, lawyer friend. The critical question for Jesus is, who was a neighbor to this man? Or are you a person that shows mercy when you're confronted with need? Is that your default setting, lawyer? Is that the way that you respond instinctively when you see need? The the story from the Old Testament in Leviticus in Deuteronomy about how one inherits eternal life and how one lives has something to do with showing mercy. There's lots of things in my life that cause me to bend away from mercy. I like to protect my time when I'm interrupted by a need or an a-, a situation that calls for mercy. I don't like the lack of control that often comes when mercy needs are presented that I haven't created or effectively planned into my life. And oftentimes, situations for mercy, like the story that we see with the Good Samaritan, they pop up. They're not planned and ordered. They're chaotic, unexpected. Awkwardness and uncomfortableness come with interactions. Those two things right there produce pain. And so my reaction to that is to be averse, to step aside, to move around, to get through the interaction with as little uncomfortableness or inter- uh, awkwardness as I, might, uh, as I could. I fear at times when showing mercy that I might be taken advantage of. I think about what others think of me. Real material costs. can't help everyone. I want to set the terms. Well, in the tension of the Christian life, the tension in these two passages between activism and contemplation making a difference for others, or making a space for God, the story of crossing dividing lines that separate people to show mercy presents indeed what I think should be a distinguishing mark of those who follow Christ. And in this story, we see Jesus with a very powerful story, a story that calls forth mercy at great cost. And in this tension, he builds up that one side of the tension in a very strong way that showing mercy is indeed a very uh, a distinctive mark of those who would follow God. Well, as we explore the tension expressed by these two passages, I want to invite us to camp for a moment on this, this picture of an invitation for showing mercy. And I want to invite Kirsten Peterson to come up, and she's going to um, share a story, a modern-day Samaritan, if you will, a modern-day picture of one whose hearts acted in compassion or in mercy. I want you to just sit because the tension in the stories put together. Um, the story of Mary and Martha uh, is on one end and then the story of, of this man showing mercy or this invitation or call for mercy is on the other. And I want us to just sit a little bit more in the tension that it's created. And I think Kirsten can tell us. Uh, through her story, a little bit about how one lives and sits in the midst of that. Okay, let's turn this on.
2: Can you hear me? It was about a month and a half ago, the day my dad was admitted to the hospital. I had been trying unsuccessfully all day to leave work so I could get over to the hospital But we were short-staffed, and there was just a lot going on that day. I had people walking in wanting a tour of the office, and I had to get payroll done. So it wasn't until 4 o'clock that afternoon when I was finally able to leave. And as I neared my dad's hospital room, I could smell something horrible. I walked in the room, but then quickly retreated back to the doorway. I couldn't identify right away what the smell was, but a quick scan of the room showed me the homeless man in the other bed. He had only been brought in 10 or 15 minutes before I arrived, and the nurse was still there, noting something in his chart. I exchanged glances with my dad and saw the help-me-look on his face. I remembered all the times when he could smell a dirty towel before anyone else could smell a thing, and I headed straight for the nurse's station. They told me that there was another vacant room a couple of doors down and assured me that he would be moved right away. I got back to my dad's room just as another nurse was disconnecting his IV so he could get up for a walk. And on our second trip past the nurse's station, we were told that all of his belongings had been moved to room 303. After the walk, I got settled in, I got dad settled into his new bed and found the nurse to hook up his IV. We talked for a little bit and watched TV, but my mind kept wandering back to the man in the other room who I had treated so rudely. I don't think he had seen me look at him and probably didn't hear me ask my dad, what is that smell? But I'm sure the hasty move wasn't lost on him, and I felt horrible. The next day at work, I couldn't get him out of my mind. When I arrived at the hospital after work, there were several bikers in line ahead of me with beards and bandanas and leather jackets, some signing in, some off to the side joking around. One of them said something to me about one of their guys cutting in line in front of me, but I assured him that I had just arrived. And as they turned to walk away, I noticed the writing on the back of their leather jackets. It said something about motorcycle Christian ministries, and it made me smile. They didn't look scary anymore, and I felt a sudden connection. I signed in, got my bracelet, and headed for the elevator just as the doors were closing. One of them reached out to hold the door and said there was room for one more. As we ascended to the next floor, I asked them if they were there to visit someone specific or if they were just there visiting, and they said they were there to visit a friend but said they'd be happy to visit anyone else. So I told them my dad was in room room 303 if they wanted to stop by and say hi. I headed to my dad's room and told him I'd run into some friends in the elevator who were going to stop by, although I wouldn't tell him who it was. I was only there a second before another man walking by stopped in the room, He and my dad had spoken a few times while he was there visiting his wife. And on this day, he had come to take her home. She had stage 4 cancer and wasn't expected to live much longer. We chatted for a couple of minutes, and then he saw her nurse, and he headed out of the room, wishing my dad a speedy recovery. Within minutes of his departure, the motorcycle game came walking through the door. Loud and boisterous, they introduced themselves and told my dad how we met in the elevator. We talked about motorcycles and service to our country. They said a whole bunch of them meet on Sundays outside Farmer Boys to fellowship and praise God. We only spoke for about 10 minutes before my dad's doctor walked in. So with a final prayer, we hugged goodbye. And as they left, I told them if they had time, they might want to visit the man and his wife who were going home. And they stopped by on their way out and said that she wasn't interested, but that was okay. We'll pray for her anyway. A short while later, My dad had to use the restroom, so I excused myself from the room. And as soon as I was out in the hallway, my heart turned to the to the room my dad was first in. A little nervous, especially after the way I had acted the day before. But I couldn't not go. There wasn't a nurse in the room, so I just walked in. And the homeless man looked at me as I approached the bed. And I didn't know what to expect, but I just smiled and introduced myself. And he smiled back and told me everyone calls him Bear because he sort of looks like a bear with his long hair and beard. And we talked about his family, his mother and his sister, and the fight he got into with his brother-in-law out on the lawn in the front yard. He told me about the abdominal pain that had gotten so bad he finally decided to go to the hospital and his surprise when the doctors said they wanted to keep him for further testing. He said there was something wrong with his pancreas, and he thought it was probably because he hadn't been eating right. He told me about his feet and how badly they always hurt, and he said he normally just sits on the sidewalk to avoid walking. He was difficult to understand at times because most of his teeth were missing or rotted out, but there was something really wonderful about being there. Before I left, I asked Bear if I could pray with him, and he said, Sure. So I thank God for introducing us and for the doctors and nurses who were taking such good care of him. And I prayed for his healing and protection. I don't know whether Bear would remember that day, but it was a day I will never forget.
0: What I love about that story is... The way that Kirsten's heart was uh, moved by God. Uh, the way that the Samaritan, unlike the priest and Levite's heart, the Samaritan's heart was somehow moved in the direction of mercy, in the direction of compassion. I love Kirsten's courage. The Samaritan took courage to act on mercy. Sometimes we feel some mercy, but we don't have the courage to respond. The courage that it took for her to even engage the burly bikers in the front of the hospital as well as this man crossing over different dividing lines that existed there. Different than in the story, but nonetheless, certainly feelings of awkwardness, uncomfortableness. uh, What common ground do I have? What do I have to offer? These kinds of things. What I love about Kirsten is her heart that moved her towards engagement rather than than a heart that planted itself in retreat or in passivity. And in the story that Jesus tells about, uh, to the lawyer, the story that he's telling to him about how one inherits eternal life, it has a, it's about mercy, and engagement, and action, and going, and moving across dividing lines that would keep us out of relationship with people. And it sets up the one side of this tension, the Christian life, that uh, he goes on to describe... And we'll look at briefly now in the story of Mary and Martha. A completely different kind of story, but at the same time as much uh, a part of what life with God and Jesus is about. The other pole uh, that creates tension for the reader after they read the story of the Good Samaritan is the story of Jesus, Mary and Martha. Mary assumes a position of devotion, we might call it, at this moment. Choosing to sit at the feet of Jesus, who's a visitor, and listen to him. Jesus says she's chosen the better thing. The better thing compared to the busy, distracted service of her sister. Inside this story, interestingly enough, is embodied the very tension that Luke has created between the Good Samaritan story and Mary and Martha, between uh, action... In contemplation, even inside the Mary and Martha story is a microcosm of that same tension. And it's embodied in Mary, contemplative, and Martha, active, going, doing. So we see two layers, even, in the way that Luke is is telling these two stories and in the story of Mary and Martha. It's a multi-layered picture of this tension between action and contemplation. Now, I... We're not gonna dive too deep into this story. I wish we could. I I don't want to give Martha too bad of a rap, right? She is well-intentioned and she's doing what's culturally the right thing to do. Uh, she's doing the right thing for a guest. Middle East, very hospitable culture. Hospitality is high on the values grid. She's doing what you know you would expect. She asks this question: how can I get this hospitality thing done? How am I gonna get it done? How do I get the preparations taken care of for our guest? Cleaning, food, drink. I think Martha got off on the wrong foot because she asked the wrong question. He asked, how can I get this done? How will I get this all done? When she should have asked, what do you want me to do, Jesus? What do you want me to do? Because then Jesus could have told her that for that day and for that moment, the better thing was what Mary was choosing. To be released from worry and being upset and scurrying around and to choose for that day the better thing, to sit and to listen at Jesus' feet. Well, I know Mary uh, sometimes, but I'm very familiar with Martha. Uh, And I can miss Jesus in the ordinary things of life. I'm distracted. I'm distracted by over-responsibility that pushes me to do more and do more. By self-importance at times that causes me in my activity to miss the presence of Jesus because I'm so concerned about taking care of things and how I might appear to others. Lack of clear focus about what's important, what's priority, sends me scurrying into many different, many places. Unrealistic perspectives about my own limits. That sends me away from Jesus and actually often into trying to do more or to live as though I am without limits. Though now at age 50, I'm becoming increasingly aware of my limits. The tensions put together in these two stories show on one end, devotion, contemplation, and invitation for the reader to have a life with God that's built around being present before the Lord in inactivity. It's also built the story around this tension on the other end of being called to show mercy. So how do I judge? And this is the the question that the tension presents. How do I judge when it's time to sit or it's time to serve? And this is where I think Luke and the way that he's constructed his gospel gives us a clue and an answer. And it begins in Luke 11, the very next passage and it begins in the very next verse. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. I don't think it's an accident that chapter 11 begins with the story of Jesus praying in a certain place. The disciples asking him, how do we pray? And then a set of stories that follow about prayer in seeking God. Because I think that in the answer to how do we live in that tension... The answer is found in what we see here in verse 1 and what follows in chapter 11. And that's that there's an answer in seeking God. Now, this can sound like uh, it's some kind of formula. It's not pithy. It can sound pithy, right? I I don't know if you've had people say, you know, you just need to to pray. And it can sometimes come out kind of pithy. Uh, I don't think this is a a pithy uh, placement of the story. It's not an accident. Luke is very intentional about placing the story there. And I think that he has a theological purpose and a message for us. That when we sit with that tension and we ask inevitably, if we're reading those two stories for what they are, where do I go, Lord? Where do I go with discerning how to live in this tension? That when I turn the page of of the scripture, the next story is about prayer. And it's about... Luke wanting his readers to know that the prescription for living in the tension between service and devotion and sitting and serving is to know that you, you come to the Lord and you bring that tension to Him and you allow Him to engage you and to direct your heart and mind so that it's formed increasingly over time around the mind and character of Christ and that you would know what kind of response He would have you have. That's Luke's answer in the story is that we come to God in prayer, and we say, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Ignatius Loyola has an answer for that as well. His answer had to do with a habit that he asked all of the members of the Society of Jesus to practice. It was a habit that would build within them a life with God that allowed them, in the moments when they needed to make decisions about how they should act or how they should be in quiet, that they would have the foundation going on inside them that would allow them to choose. And he had something that he asked each of them to, to participate in called the daily exam and prayer. These are the three questions that he had every member of the Society of Jesus from the uh, mid-1500s to today. This is what Jesuits pray every day. These three questions, or some version of this. Lord, where, where have I sensed the Lord's presence... Ask them to give thanks. Where have I missed or betrayed His presence? To ask for forgiveness. And then lastly, what one request or question am I holding before God in the season of my life? And he suggested that as they lived out these questions in prayer and reflection before God, it would bring them at the points where they had this juncture of sit or serve, that habit and rhythm would, 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 would bring them to a place where they would have more of a sense of how to respond. Because they're more in touch with what's going on inside of them and they're more in touch with what God's doing in their midst. They would have more of a way to respond. I commend these questions to you as a daily habit. At noontime or at the end of a day or perhaps in the morning that you might sit for five minutes even and let these questions seep into your mind and heart and reflect on them and allow them to begin to shape increasingly how you live Um, in your life with God, and allow them to be the things that kind of give fuel that in the midst of the decisions that have to be made in the midst of a week or month about devotion, contemplation, or activity and mission, that somehow the fact that you're working with these questions would give you more of a sense of how God is calling you to act or be. Well, I think Luke gave us an answer in chapter 11 because of where he places the stories about prayer Ignatius gives us something of an answer in how to use these questions that I commend to you. And then lastly, there's an answer that we developed uh, in an illustrative way at this conference that I told you about. And it's in this picture here. The contemplative inaction. So my colleagues took those two pictures, and over the course of that night, not only did they have those two pictures that reflected the tension that we see here in the story but they created a third picture, which is a way forward, which is the way of the contemplative who's in action. We see the staff, right? In the guy's hand, staff is used for someone who's in motion and who's moving. And then threaded into their very being, integrated in the very center of who they are, are these two strands. The strand of invitation to go and to do, to serve. The red strand of activity and mission. And then threaded into their very core of their being is this other strand about devotion and contemplation in life with God. And that's the invitation that God gives to us, men and women at Bridges, quipping world changers. How do we live out that vision and that mission in a way where our life with God's not compromised and we're able to sustain a life of mission? And it's in the integration of these two And it's in the invitation to prayer that Jesus shows us in the Gospel of Luke. So in close, I want to uh, pose two questions for us as we end this morning. And I ask you to consider these two questions and where the Lord's inviting you. The first is, what end of this tension between contemplation and activity or mission that Luke presents is Jesus calling you to integrate more into your life of faith? Where do you bend Do you bend more towards devotion and contemplation or to activity and mission and movement? And today, what's Jesus' invitation to you? As you consider the two poles in that tension, is it to rebalance? Is it to move more in one direction? And to be honest, it can take just as much courage to engage God in contemplation and reflection as it does to cross dividing lines that keep people out of relationship with one another. Which one is it for you? Is there an invitation from God to you today? And then secondly, this question. Is there a decision even today about acting in mercy or a decision that's been flowing in the stream of your life about where devotion and contemplation exists in your own life with God? Is there a decision even today that Jesus is inviting you to pray specifically about in those two poles? Is there something very real is there a man in a hospital bed that smells that's looming in the horizon of your relationships that you're circling around and trying to discern what am I going to do about that? Or within uh, your family? Or you know, any, any way in which there's a, uh, an invitation to movement there? Or is there an invitation kind of on the other end? Is there a real practical decision that the Lord might be calling you to seek Him in prayer about today? And I want to invite you to consider that and to pray as we come to um, the time of close now. We invite the worship team up. So, carry those two questions into this time of worship. If you want prayer from someone else or you want to pray in, a, in, in an act of um, in sort of initiating, I want this you know, sort of a solemn moment before the Lord, certainly feel free to come up and pray up front here. But as we come to, to worship now, Invite the Lord to to speak to you. Lord, we do come in this moment. We thank you for the images in the scripture. Attention of activity and sitting at your feet. Serving and sitting. In this moment, would you speak a word to us. For us individually as well as collectively, God a word that you're wanting to bring, an invitation to activity, or maybe it's an invitation to reflection, contemplation. You know the story of our lives. You know how we're bent. You know uh, what each of us needs to sustain this life with God that's vital and thriving and fruitful. So speak a word to us, Lord, that we might respond to your invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. I welcome you to pray in your pews or to come forward uh, if, if you want prayer from, from uh, one of our prayer partners, the elders, or to just sit quiet and hear.